Hi everybody, Rob from the Hooked On podcast, How To Be Great here. Look, we enjoy doing what we do, for the love of it, it's wrestling, enjoy it, remember? But if you do feel like dropping us a few quid to help us out, be our guest. We don't expect it, but we will appreciate it. Thanks ever so much for your support. Don't forget, it's wrestling, enjoy it. everybody welcome to the how to be great podcast thank you for joining us once again my name is robert nickel with me over there look is mr paul benson good to have you with me paul hey mate how you doing hello everyone uh i've got a good week how about you rob what have you been up to yeah, been golfing this week i have been golfing yeah, a bit of golf yesterday uh, it was uh, most erratic stuff we don't we're not here to talk about my uh, my golf <laughs> if you want to know how to be great at golf watch the european tour the us tour <laughs> Do not watch me. Uh, I could not tell you that. Uh, but I do want to talk about things that are great in wrestling. And one of those things that we were talking about last week was the King of the Ring. We'll be talking about that in just a second uh, to find out what the results were of last week's poll. And today it's a brand new topic that we've uh, not got anywhere near before. It's one I've been looking forward to doing since the start of this project. Um, it's a it's a slightly confusing topic to explain so hopefully some of you that have already joined in on social media and not necessarily got what we were saying will understand as we talk but i definitely think the show is only one of the better ones because it's such a rich vein uh, to really talk about so once we get into it i'm sure you are going to love it um for those of you that are watching hello thank you for uh, joining us here on youtube live and um, for those of you that are listening uh via the podcast hello to you too wherever you're listening uh, from or watching from uh, we really appreciate you being with us. And the reason I'm addressing both is because occasionally I might refer to uh, something that's actually happening on screen. And I don't want our podcast listeners to uh, to feel left out. But uh, <laughs> if you really want all the visual stuff or the uh, the wacky, wild visual uh, stuff, please join us for our weekly quiz. That's what I'm doing. I'm getting a little plug in for the quiz. There 8, we go. 8 p.m. Sunday evening is now my favorite hour and a half or two hours of the week. Where we have 2020 questions, which we stretch over a long period of time, but it's the most fun, even if Paul and I are starting to get a little bit, uh, well, we're getting a bit upstage now, aren't we? Oh, mate, Chris Hatch is the biggest mistake we ever made in our in our r- wish to conquer the wrestling airwaves. Yeah, like he's come in, run roughshod over us, and now he's the only thing that people want to see. Yeah, so we're, we're having to... Uh, to limit our Hatchomania segments every week on the quiz. But uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, that's fine. But uh, come and join in on a Sunday night, uh, Facebook Live and YouTube Live, live broadcast where you can join in with our quiz. Uh, and it's, um, it's a great giggle. Anyway, what we're here to talk about today is how to be great. If it's the first time of you watching or listening to this, what we essentially do is we take a topic within wrestling, uh, take it right down to its nuance, uh, Paul and I come up with a top five about whatever that uh, particular topic is, and then it's over to you to do the vote. For example, last week we were deciding who is the greatest king of the ring, and we put down a few little rules for it. It wasn't just how they performed on the night. It wasn't just uh, the you know the interest of that show, but also how they took being the king going forward. Lots of little things like that. That's what we, um, influenced us to pick our top five. I will say that my instinct is, Paul, I always, every, every week, ask me, what do I think is going to win? 
And this week, my instinct suggests that people will just go King of the Ring equals Steve Austin. We allowed him on the five. He only just got into our five, it should be said. But uh, my certainly my vote would go a different way, as, as I know Paul's would, because we said it at the end of last week's show. But uh, I think Austin's probably going to win this, Paul. But I'd be interested to, for you to tell me what the uh, the rundown is. Well, um, it was a very interesting run now, actually. So, first of all, the fifth, in fifth position, he's not going to come fifth very often on these things, but it was Bret Hart. Um, okay. Bottom, bottom of our five. Fourth position, Stone Cold Steve Austin. So, fourth. it turns out fourth. So, it turns out more people actually agree with our rationale on that than, than you might have, oh, what well, we might have thought. So, that was a nice surprise in terms that's of agreement. And, and speaking of agreeing with us, the winner by an overwhelming majority, Owen Hart, the King of Hearts. Excellent. Well, that was our yeah. pick, wasn't it? And He was our pick. And I think that might, might be the first time that's happened, that you, I, and the audience have all had the same pick uh, yeah. as, a, as a unanimous winner. And it's deservedly so. He was even so. more with that crown than anyone. I think he was so. the we, man. Went, we went into depth last week about Owen was how he was probably Mr. 1994. Yeah, as well as question, being King no of um, really the iconic figure in WWF anyway of, of that year. And yeah, I'm really pleased because like we said last week, it's, I, I still think Brett's title, uh, Brett's King of the Ring win is the best showing. It's the best King of the Ring tournament, but Brett didn't do anything with the kingship. If that's not even a word, is it? But, but with the, the coronation yeah. wave, obviously it led into a feud with Lawler. Uh, but, but that was being, it. Being King of the Ring directly didn't do anything for Brett. And actually, as we ran down last week, it didn't really do anything for Austin. It was just a platform for the, for the 316 uh, promo. And indeed, the matches with Mero and, and Roberts are, are nothing particularly to write home about. So I think Owen had the best combo of an entertaining tournament, uh, plus really, really running with the King gimmick. So, yes, I'm absolutely delighted with that. Well done, audience. And well done, us. Uh, indeed. Coming, coming to an agreement. That suggests... I don't know if that suggests that uh, people actually listen to us or whether they <laughs> listen to our views and go well, for Robert Wright. I'm not quite or, sure about that. Or whether we were just in tune with everybody this week, more so than I anticipated. I, I think it's the uh, exception that proves the rule, my friend. Well, we will see, and there's plenty uh, of those uh, as far as this podcast is concerned. Right, okay, on to today's uh, edition. Today's uh, topic on how to be great uh, that we put to you on social media over the last couple of days with a few responses, but like I said, there was a little bit of... Uh, uh, minor confusion uh, about the topic. So let me try and elucidate a bit more. What we are saying is it's the best wrestler slash non-wrestler combo. I think what we had the issue with is we used the phrase in real life, didn't we? In the, Was it in real life or something like on-screen, off-screen or something like that? I think in, in ring, out, ring, I in, think I used. In ring and out of the ring is what we used on the socials. And I think people took that as being best friends so we had people saying like um yeah, yeah. michaels and triple h and that sort of thing that's not what we're after we're after pure kayfabe okay pure what you see on the screen but it's the combination of a manager slash valet slash you know advocate or agent or whatever they call themselves with an in-ring talent or team or faction um and so you will see as we go along the kind of things we are talking about but before we get into it paul how Easy did you find coming up with a list this week? I think I've got a lot of people to talk about, but realistically, a short list of probably... A, I've got seven or eight from which I would take our five, if if indeed you're in sync with me again. Uh, similarly, I... You know, we could. there's endless very good ones. There's endless ones that you'd want to talk about that we're not going to have time to talk about, but actually finding a definitive number one 
is probably the hardest this week that I've, yeah. you know, there's no, I look at the list and I go, there's, there isn't one there that screams at me. Um, there's a lot of excellent ones that would be worthy of it, but there's not one that stands head and shoulders above the other. So it'd be interesting to see where we get to with this. It I will. think we're going to need to, because of, because of the sheer breadth of numbers, I think we are going to have to be more quick fire than usual. We, yeah, um, we, we probably so, will. So, apologies in advance if we skim over anyone's favourites. <laughs> Well, that's the interesting thing. You know, I think that might be where we start our topic this week in terms of... Because what I think... I'm not going to pat ourselves too much on the back, but I think what a lot of places would do here is do who's the greatest manager. Right? I think mm. that's, that's kind of almost the topic, who's the greatest manager. But I don't think... Uh, well, I think, I think I know who would win that. Most of the time, if we say... like, If yeah, we, if yeah, we yeah. said what was the best King of the Ring tournament, Bret Hart would have won, right? You know, if you, there's certain ones that we've done, who you know, which is the best, blah blah blah. We know what would win, so we tweak the question a little bit. Um, I think if we said who's the greatest manager of all time, Bobby Heenan would win. Would you agree? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, without much, without much deliberation. Yeah, I think Bobby Heenan would win. Um, there's a fantastic episode of Legends of Wrestling Roundtable, which was a bunch of shows that they had in about 10, 12 years ago on the uh, what was WWE twenty four seven, I think, at the time. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's now yeah. on the network. And they've got one called The Lost Art of the Wrestling Manager, um, which is really interesting. And whoever's on the panel, I, I forget exactly who's on there, but I think Michael Hayes, Jim Ross, a couple of others. Um, and they all come down on um, Bobby Heenan as being number one. I think they do a bit of a Mount Rushmore sort of thing, and, and they all come down. They all have Heenan on there. Um, so he would undoubtedly win that subject, I think. But I'll be honest, and I'll go in with this right from the start, I don't have a Bobby Heenan and wrestler combo that I'm pushing for here. I've got um, a couple that I think he was he was good with, the ones he was better with, but I don't have one to me that stands up on this uh, this top shelf. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, I've got one on my list. I've got a list of about 15, 16, and one of them's Bobby Heenan. Um, but it's certainly in the lower half of that list if you're ranking them without question, um, which is unusual. You know, you think he doesn't have that one iconic client, really, does he? He was so good with so many guys that it was almost, especially when he was feuding with Hulk Hogan, it was almost that Bobby Heenan was the star. Um, and and the, unlike most of these combos that were well-remembered and successful, the guys in the ring were the ones playing second fiddle to Bobby Heenan. Mm. Rightly so, by the way, because he was so good. You know, he's one of the best talents. You could make an argument saying he's the greatest of all time in, at what he does in wrestling history. Um and I think he was he was always the star. Um, so yeah, you're right. I you know I couldn't argue very heavily for any of his uh, combinations. There's actually a pattern of. Um, I mean, I'm not saying he was the first to do it because obviously wrestling history goes back a very very long way into all the territories and stuff. But I think the first one that comes to people's mind, like you just said, Heenan versus Hogan, which obviously has its pinnacle with Andre uh, yeah. at WrestleMania three. That pattern for years of Heenan providing a new heel for Undertaker for Hogan was replicated really with Undertaker and Ted DiBiase later yeah, in the 90s yeah, where DiBiase um, you know had a little bit behind Yokozuna wasn't the manager of but he was in, involved in that feud and then you had uh, IRS and King Kong Bundy and the other Undertaker and all that all that kind of stuff yep. not, in that, not in that order uh, and again in the early days of Hogan's run in WCW Jimmy Hart is with the Dungeon of Doom and it's the Dungeon of Doom that are rolling out opponents yep. for Hogan. So it's, it's a tried and tested formula having the manager. In fact, that'd be another, another interesting topic for another day, maybe managers versus um, individuals. Yeah. But um, 
Uh, Harvey, I, I Whip, Harvey Whippleman, Harvey Whippleman against the Undertaker stands out to me as well. <laughs> well yeah, Maybe not as long a list, but he had, you know, he had Carmala, he had the Giant Gonzalez, and that might have been it. To be fair, but it was yeah. the same sort of vein. Remember, he said he was gonna drop a bomb. That's <laughs> the bomb. I did, I did, I did, I did, I did a Mick Foley impression rather than a uh, Bobby Heenan one. But uh, yeah, I've got, I had, I've got Heenan Andre written down. I've got brackets the family when there was the Heenan family. Uh, Heenan Perfect was a really That's great the combo. One. But it's That's probably the a one bit I've short. Got. It's probably a bit short-lived. Um, it you know wasn't really a combination for all that long. And the other one going back even further that was much more longer-lived. Um, but obviously people won't have seen it so much because it's a little bit further back. Um, is Heenan Bockwinkle? And people that have listened to this podcast for a long time know that I'm a big Nick Bockwinkle fan from not being around during his era, but going back and watching him, I absolutely adore Nick Bockwinkle and the Bockwinkle Heenan combo was beautiful and it was the kind of combo where a little bit like Heyman and CM Punk which we might touch on later where you think that someone like CM Punk doesn't need a mouthpiece but Heyman can still add to him Nick Bockwinkle is one of the greatest talkers of all time he didn't need anyone with him but Heenan still added something to that presentation and I think there's going to be a difference here between some of these topics is sometimes it's a manager that talks for the person and sometimes it's a person that's in the background a bit, but they just add to the presentation. And it's not a case of being the manager that speaks for them. It's just the overall package. And I think we're going to end up um, with a few of those kind of unique ones sure. on our list when it comes to it. Um, so that's Bobby Heenan done uh, in terms of, I don't think, I think we both, all, we both agreed that probably none of the, those there. Uh, examples are going to be pushed onto the top five. The only thing I did want to say about Heenan and Perfect really quickly, I think it's the only instance I can think of. So when Bobby Heenan managed Mr. Perfect as a wrestler, obviously then he had that spell uh, under the coach, didn't he? Um, When he lost to Bret Hart Mm -hmm. at SummerSlam. But then is it the only time that a manager has had a manager? Because really... Bobby Heenan was Mr. Perfect's manager when he was the, what was he? The executive assistant of Ric Flair. And you could argue uh, consultant was it executive consultant? Executive consultant, that was the one. And it kind of Bobby Heenan kind of acted as his mentor slash manager, which I thought was fascinating. Um, not worthy of much further discussion, but I did want to sort of flag it. Well, I think the I think the idea was meant to be that Heenan was really Flair's manager, but he wasn't allowed to be Flair's manager because he was a broadcast journalist. So perfect was Heenan's representative, wasn't it? I think that yes. was kind of the uh, well, the yeah, yeah, true. And again, it was great. It was it was really great. And, you know, I'm, certainly things that don't make our top five does not mean that we don't think anything of them. Um, I think, I th- in fact, does, does, does Flair not do a, a promo after losing to Savage at WrestleMania 8 where he basically explains the thing? You know, he explains, you know, I'm there and Perfect's there. The whole thing's watched over by Heenan. I, I think he actually explains the, does he? the dyna- dynamic. I'm, I'm sure that's post, uh, post his loss. I can see him being all bloodied. So I think it's uh, post I'll his loss it to out. Savage at... Uh, at WrestleMania eight. Um, oh, speaking of speaking of Savage, I've just said Savage. Should we should we go there straight away? Let's we might as well. I think one of the first things that came into my mind, and certainly I think it was the one that was mentioned by the most people on social media, was Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth. Now it's the 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 duo, the fascinating aspect of the duo in real life, um, how their relationship and their on screen relationship didn't necessarily mirror. I believe they were still together on screen when they'd fallen out in real life. That's right. Yeah. Liz went away for a bit, came back. It carries on into WCW where they split up again. It's a very, very interesting um, dynamic, but it lasted so long. The story goes from the story is 
I think it's over 10 years, isn't it, on, on TV, really, if you go right from the, yeah, the yeah, very yeah, start sure. of them appearing together through to the WCW days. So you, to, to, to me, you don't think of one without the other. And it's even interesting that Savage had other, you know, um, interests, obviously, with, with Sensational Sherry, Sensational Queen Sherry. Uh, but to me, Savage Liz just, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a lock, isn't it? Oh, unquestionably, you know, it did everything. You know, they, they were a package when they were together and he was, you know, coming up towards his first WWF title run. Like, you know, having Elizabeth there was not only sort of a way to legitimize him as a face and make him relatable to the audience, but it facilitated so much of what he did as a character. You know, having her be the object that, got, A, got the mega powers together and then split him up again and drove a wedge and made him turn heel, which ultimately split the two, uh, split Liz and Savage apart. Then he was kind of, you always felt that, while he was going through that heel run, everything he did was kind of to not feud with Miss Elizabeth as such, but to maybe prove that he could do it without her. Almost like, you know, saying, I could do this on my own. I don't need you, you know, almost unspoken. But it was always, you always felt like she was, even when she was off screen, she was the driver behind all his antics. Just so he could, you know, the more heelish he was, the more he wound her up. Totally unspoken, but that was, that was always there underlying to me. And then, Obviously, when they got back together at WrestleMania 7, one of the greatest WrestleMania moments of all time. The following WrestleMania, you know, the feud with Flair was built around it. He was, without doing much of anything physically or getting involved in, you know, matching stuff, she was so important to everything he did and the whole, the whole pattern of his career. She's, um, yeah, she's, there's nothing more to be said in terms of placing on the list. It's got to be there. It's got to be in the five. I really do think it has because it's not, as you said, I think you underlined everything that uh, is important here is that she was involved in so much. She wasn't just someone that stood in the background. Nope. Uh, well, you know, she, you know, she was, you know, she wasn't, obviously she wasn't just a pretty face. She was a very pretty face, but she actually offered so much more. But I think sometimes it was what you inferred as a viewer. You just, just by looking at her and the way she dressed, even just the way her, her hair was, you know, that she had this very wholesome, you know, nice girlfriend, um, you know, yep. image, didn't she? And so when Savage goes off with Sherry, who was everything that Liz wasn't in terms of being brash and over the top and aggressive. And, and so I think I will say quite a lot. I, I don't think Randy and Liz would have worked. I mean, it did work even before they split up, but I don't think Randy, Liz, the whole dynamic getting back together would have worked without Sherry. Now I think it's really important to, oh, no. to factor win in Sherry. Because again, on, on my list, I don't have anything that's, Sherry's almost comes into my Bobby Heenan category of everyone that Sherry worked with, she enhanced and was brilliant at what she did, but I don't have a duo which holds her right up here on, on my list. But certainly for what she did with, with Randy um, and how that brought Liz back into the fold, as you say, at WrestleMania 7, it was, it was important, I think, for the character of Miss Elizabeth that she needed that counterpart of, of Sensational Sherry. Yeah, I, and absolutely. And on, on that note, I would have Sherry on my on or right at the top of my list with randy savage okay you know it was it you know it was a completely different dynamic to miss elizabeth obviously but it was such a great pairing of vicious heels and you could feel a she, and she was so different she was manipulative she was driving you know randy savage's character is a man who is uh, rash doesn't think things through logically he's led by his heart not by his head and that's both as a heel and a face Whereas Elizabeth guided that and helped him keep on the right path, Sherry manipulated that. 
Sherry used that hot-headedness and that brashness to her own ends, stoked it and fueled it, and essentially used that to have the macho man do her bidding. You know, she knew what she was doing. And as soon as he'd failed and as soon as his career was over, boom, kicked him straight to the curb after that, uh, literally kicked him um, <laughs> after that, after that warrior match. So to me, I would, I would, I would make a case for getting those in, those two in the five as well. Okay. I probably, well, probably won't make it, but I think I rate it that highly. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll plant that to one side and, and we'll, we'll come mm. back to it. And um, what I will say just to kind of wrap up the, the macho man stuff is that something I liked about him, um, that I think sometimes elsewhere in wrestling it can be a bit of an issue is that, listen, I understand why wrestlers have to turn, quote-unquote, babyface heel. But sometimes it's at the expense of realism. I mean, you, there will be people in your life that you know. You go, he used to be quite a nice bloke. He's actually a bit of a tosser now. But it'll be a gradual development over a long period of time about whether they've got money or they've got you know a chip on their shoulder about something or whatever it might be. It very rarely happens like that overnight. Um, and I think there are things in wrestling where someone suddenly, this nice person who's been lovely for, you know, you know, a dozen, a dozen years, suddenly is a nasty person and stitches up their mate. And you sort of go, really, would that happen? Especially yeah. when they go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. If you look at Savage's career, he's not massively different, is he? Like the heel no. Randy Savage and the baby safe race Randy Savage are not massively different. And you could argue that the whole reason he was a heel for that time when the mega power split up was because of losing Liz and being manipulated by Sherry. And as I, I think the, I think the, the line in between is, is close enough that you yep. totally and utterly believe Savage one way or another. He doesn't really change. It's just how much he puts up with his, with his environment. I think he's one of the most believable characters in wrestling history and so pliable because of that. I agree. Um, Everything he did was logical. You know, like, you know, I've long advocated that, you know, if if you're being silly about it, he was the baby face. He was in the right in that breakup with Hulk Hogan. And the best heels are the ones that have that germ of truth and that germ of um, correctness in what they're doing. And Savage always did. Whenever Savage turned heel or turned face, there was a very bona fide reason. And because that character was so hot-headed and so manipulated and so driven by, you know, what's in front of him, he was like a dog, wasn't he? He was like a dog who, you know, he couldn't think about the bigger picture. He could only think about his immediate need. Um, and because of that, you could if you wrote him well, which they always, always, always did. WWE always wrote Randy Savage perfectly from start to finish. And WCW did a good job too. Um, it worked. It worked either way. And it was logical. And, you know, I won't, you know, I don't think anyone, I don't think it's hard to understand that Randy Savage is my favorite wrestler of all time. I just think he was absolutely wonderful. Um, and yeah, I think he's, I think he works both ways. And, and that's why I have both manager sets on. Face on I'll, do, I'll do an example of someone I don't think it works with modern day and then, and then we'll move on. And it's someone I've got a huge amount of respect for. I think they're a terrific baby face and I think they're a terrific heel. But I don't like the disparity between baby face Seth Rollins and heel Seth Rollins. I think they're so different. Yeah. And I think he does a great job of both, but he's been whatever, different the, guys. Shield, whatever the shield was. And then the, you know, the, the face of the company heel under Triple H. Then I'm sorry for everything I did you know, babyface Seth Rollins. And then he was, he was pure and he was good. And he was, you know, with the fans and apologized and you believed him. And now he's back being a heel again. And I think he's good at everything. He's been good all the way along, but you go, it's such a, a way to, he's going, mm. if he turns yeah. again, you're like, well, really anymore? Anyway, we're not here to talk about modern no. day Seth Rollins. We're here to talk about uh, other people. 
Um, I have a list of managers. I want to rattle through these and get rid of them early because what we sometimes do is end up having them as a bit of a footnote as we uh, try and get the podcast wrapped. But I want to go through them quite early. I've got a list here of what I consider to be eight or nine uh, really good or at least very prominent uh, wrestling managers at various different times in history, but I can't really put someone with them uh, that, again, okay. they get up to, this, up to the top level. And they're very, very disparate. But I'm going to mention to you um, AJ Lee, Sonny, Stacey Keebler, Jim Mitchell, Skandar Akbar, Playboy Gary Hart, Freddie Blassie, Slick. There's a hell, a hell of a bunch of names, all sorts of different yeah, people yeah. in there from different eras. I was never a big Slick fan, but I'm saying that he was very prominent in his time. All of those people, big names in wrestling history, exception Playboy Gary Hart. If you go back and watch some of his stuff, what a great talker and oh, believable heel manager and whatever, Skandar Akbar and his, his groups. Um, I always thought the Sinister Minister was, was fun to watch in ECW and TNA. Um, but I don't have anyone that goes with any of those to be anywhere near our list. But I want to mention them all. <sighs> and in fact, there was a summer where AJ Lee was the biggest star in wrestling. You know, yeah. But, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. She, but she, she was with Kane and with CM Punk and with Daniel Bryan and with Dolph Ziggler and <laughs> so many different people. But you know, well, she, she was the star, job. wasn't she? She was the star. Yeah. And that, that's, yeah. in fact, that brings, that brings us that the topic forward a little bit is that if the manager is the star, that kind of makes it a problem. Sonny was always the star, wasn't she? Um, she was. I don't think uh, problems the wrong word for me because a star's a star, and if it draws True. money and gets fans' attention, it doesn't matter what role that star is in necessarily. If it's a bloody cameraman getting over, uh, as but long as that's drawing money. But it should be the act, and that's what we're talking about. Exactly. Macho Man Liz, Liz wasn't the star, but she was part of the act for, that there was. For the our conversation, it needs to be a but. It needs to be a pair. But in mm. general wrestling terms, it doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter who's the star. Which is why Sonny, I think, was a great was great in her role, but you're bang right. She's not even in, remotely in the con- in the conversation for what we're talking about because there was never anyone who was a pairing with her. Um, whereas, like you say, Savage and Liz were a pair together. Um, so, I don't, yeah, I, I've got like heat. Like I said, go, go back to what I was saying earlier about Heenan being the star. And it probably is detrimental to the conversation. Again, the conversation we're having now, there needs to be more equality or at least there needs to be you know, the guy in the ring needs to be better because of the actions of the person outside the ring. Um, and it was never the case with Sonny. She was just what she was throughout yeah. the whole way. And, every, and everything else was an accessory. Very much so. And there's lots of, um, there's lots of women on this list. And we could go into a discussion about what's the difference between a, a manager or a valet or whatever. But I don't think we really need to. It's just... It's simply that they were the, the, the second, to use an old British wrestling term, uh, and they would enhance the, uh, enhance the act. I mentioned Stacey yeah. in there. I always thought, and I actually, in doing a bit of research for this, I found some other lists that people had done of best 10 and worst 10 of these sorts of things. And I saw on one of them, it said, on the worst list was the Dudleys and Stacey Keebler. And I'm like, I thought the Dudleys and Stacey Keebler were a surprisingly good combo. I mean, yeah, I don't think they're all right. I don't think they're anywhere near the top of this list, but... I thought Stacey worked quite well with the Dudleys. I thought it was quite a fun little, uh, fun little abs- addition in there. Absolutely fine. Yeah. Another one, you know, that probably won't make our list that I'd like to mention. I don't know if you've got it on there. Is uh, Luna and Bam Bam? I haven't got Luna- it on there. I see, but it's a good shout. Luna Vachon and Bam Bam Bigelow, they're not going to pull up any trees. They're not going to make our top five. But they were such a fun pairing. A pair of uh, what should we? How should we call them? Uh, counterculture uh, baddies. Um, <laughs> Very good. I just thought they were great, great fun together and a really well-matched pairing. 
you could imagine them being together in real life. Yeah, um, you definitely could. You yeah. definitely could. And I think that's yeah. hugely important for, uh, definitely. for those pairings when you they don't explicitly say they are boyfriend and girlfriend, but that's that's essentially what they're going for. Yeah, what, yeah. What, was, what was she called? His his main squeeze, which was his main that. squeeze. Exactly. Um, I think one of the reasons I didn't necessarily think of Luna and Bam Bam, and I think that some people um, to get to the to get to the top of this list, I think longevity has to be a thing. Like like I yes. said, there's several combos that we could mention here, and you go, "Wow, what a great combination!" But they only existed for a few months, and therefore it's difficult to say they deserve a place in wrestling history. And I would say that they weren't together anywhere near long enough for you to uh, to push no, that, nor did they have prominent sh- prominent enough. Uh, positions on television but i would it's a great it's a great uh, mention that i've uh, that i've not gone for um a couple of other ones similar on those sort of lines again that i wouldn't necessarily have right to the very top um i've got both lita and the hardys and lita and edge um two different things that she was you know big on interesting Did... interesting i i would i've got a list with some stars next to it for ones that i would i would have in the uh, the upper echelons lita and edge unquestionably in that operation. Do you mind if we just talk about that for a bit? Of course. No, that's, is that that's, a good that's time? Whole point. Yeah, that's the whole point. What, you know, what a wonderful pairing those guys were, you know, edge, edge and Lita made each other, uh, more so made edge, which was obviously the idea, you know, edge was a decent upper level baby face that you could clear. They really the clear that management really wanted to get up to that next level, but you could never just quite get there. It was always sort of hacking just below turn heel in a really good fashion. And then obviously the whole Matt Hardy Lita thing blew up and Oh my God, did they harness that the right way? Do you remember in the summer, when was it? Summer 2005 when it all kicked off? And yeah, they- it would have been because one night stands, there was the whole, that's well, right. Yeah. One night stand, Paul Heyman says Matt freaking hard. He doesn't. He? So that's, that's it. Before Matt comes back. So. so, you know, everyone lost their mind, me included, about how they brought Matt Hardy back and just basically quashed him uh, and fed him to Edge. Oh, my God, they've left so much money. Matt Hardy could have been a massive star. Rah, 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 rah. They do know what they're doing sometimes, don't they? They do know what they're doing. And they use Matt Hardy to make Edge the biggest bastard in wrestling. And the beauty thing about Edge and Leach as a combination is I don't know about you and I don't know about anybody else out there, but I despised them because they were, <laughs> they were genuinely because they were two good looking, successful people who, how do I put this politely, enjoyed each other's company um, and everything about them was brash and horrible and made you want them to genuinely made you want to genuinely, genuinely dislike them. I thought they generated heat together like nobody's business and, and better than any couple have since in terms of a man and a woman in wrestling. I just thought they were wonderful, wonderful pairing together. And I'd, if it were just me putting this top five together, they'd be right on there with a bullet. So, I mean, that's, you've, you've made a very convincing point, actually. And certainly there's a couple of people that I've got on my list that you might have just taught yourself above. Um, so certainly pencil them down for the time being. We'll, we'll come back to... Uh, come back to them i i, I thought it was an interesting line that you use where you said uh, you said edge and lead edge and leader absolutely made each other and i thought that sentence works if you change the word made um but uh, it was it was a case of the sort of a, a reality you know something that happened in reality them seizing upon it sometimes something will happen in reality and they bring it onto screen and you go mm, that doesn't really work sometimes you know, reality Lynch and Seth it? Rollins. Well, I mean, there is that. That's a good. That's a good shout. Um, another one from a 
a WCW era um, would be I never thought the whole thing with um, Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit and Nancy worked, you know, were woman as she was okay. at the time. I just never thought it, it never, I've always thought that Kevin Sullivan's probably, the, I've never understood Kevin Sullivan at all. Um, and that's just me. But uh, I never thought that thing worked. And it was all supposed to be that sort of like little wink to the camera. You know what's going on in real life. And it was like, it's 1996. No one did know what was happening in real life. But uh, uh, anywho, um, yeah, Edge and Lita absolutely have to be in that conversation then. Um, a few others of that sort of ilk, though. Uh, the slightly real life, or at least the uh, the male female partnership, um, Lana and Rusev, from a uh, modern perspective, worked very well, especially to start with. Yeah, faded, really well. I think faded. faded. Lana was the star. Then everyone realised Rusev actually had a personality. Then they tinkered with her character so much that she was American, then she wasn't, and then were together, then she wasn't, and then the whole you know, Lashley thing has been you know awful. But um, a fun act, though. I think a positive act between the two of them, and, and worthy of a of a mention. Um, yep, again, going, going way, way back um, uh, for anyone that's, again, I wasn't around, I can't pretend to be around at the time, but the stuff I've seen looking back, uh, the Jimmy Garvin act with Sunshine and Precious is tremendous stuff. Obviously, was a lot of fun. Uh, what's that, sorry? I'm not familiar, shamefully. I don't really know anything about that. Right, it's, essentially, he had a, he had a, um, a, a valet, very much, very much a valet, and then he, he got an assistant for it. Not massively dissimilar to the Deborah Miss Kitty thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of like having one valet, then having another one that was her valet, as it were. And then they split up and he went with a new one. And it, one of them was his real life wife. It was a it's very fun, very fun angle in, in world yep. class. Um, they would be definitely worth a, a shout. Um, and indeed, another one which is interesting in terms of the, the number two being more over than the number one. I think you have to mention Mark Merrow and Sable. You do. You have to mention him because it made a star um, in Sable, but it probably killed a star potentially in in Mark Marrow. Um, yeah, I thought about these guys because just purely because of how big Sable was, but really they, they didn't do a lot. For husband and wife, they had zero natural chemistry. Um, <laughs> there was nothing there. And Mark Marrow was, you know, I like the wild man in isolation. I thought it was a fun little character. But there's yeah, there's no, there's no, there was no real benefit from Sable being there. I don't. Oh, I think. I have any I think memories. Mark- I think Marvelous Mark is a much better character. Oh, no question. Than the wild man. I liked Marvelous Mark. I did. They were much better foils than a pairing on screen anyway. And uh, yeah, in real life, as it turns out, I think. It did did seem that way. It's very, very interesting. They've never done really anything with with her and Brock. Like nothing. Well, it's it's not on the cards, mate. It's been, Paul Heyman said that in the past. It is not up for discussion. Sable, Rena Mara, whatever Rena Lesnar, whatever you want to call it, is Brock Lesnar's wife. She is private. She is no longer a celebrity. She's in private, and that's that. There is no question. And, and, and the mother of his that, children. And you would have said that six months ago about Michelle McCool and Undertaker. <laughs> no, you would. Very you true. Would. They were Very never true. ever. They were never ever ever going to acknowledge that, and then they did. And you know, we've we've seen what's happened there. True. 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 Okay, I've got one more of those sorts of uh, connections, and it's one that I do want to offer as a, as a possible one for the top list. Uh, what about Gold Dust and Marlena? Do you know what I did? That I did that sucking in with it completely involuntarily. I was not. That was not me. Uh, not me trying to do it. Um, <laughs> Paul Benson involuntarily, involuntarily sucks. That is what we learn about that. Um, I. I like these guys together. I think they were very good. I think it breathe real life into the gold dust character that maybe wasn't there before. Um, I wouldn't have them anywhere near the top five. 
I enjoyed them for what they were. No, I enjoyed them for what they were. They were a fun act. They complemented each other. Um, but longevity-wise, not so much. And um, again, they didn't really get anywhere together. Um, oh, I don't think I'd, that's I'd, fair. I'd, I'd, put, I'd put them as a, an upgraded version of the, uh, the Bam Bam Bigelow and Luna example. No, oh, um, I think that's... I think that's very harsh. I think they absolutely did get somewhere together. I think to begin with, I mean, you had this, you know, let's, let's call it what it was. You had this pseudo gay angle with yep. um, gold dust. Was he gay? Was he not? Was he trying to um, seduce Razor Ramon or was he just trying to throw him off guard because of his title? Great angle, controversial, but good angle. Yeah. Um, yeah. She then turns up as, as, as the old Roddy Piper thing says, when you think you've got the answers, gold dust changes the questions. So you then then she she added that dimension of a bit the mysticalness or the strangeness of their act. When you had to turn gold dust babyface, he then became protective of this woman that was obviously his partner, his wife. And so you got the sympathetic side of gold dust, which helped you go into true, true. gold dust. And then when he chucked her and went all bizarre gold dust, back comes Luna again. Funnily enough, yeah. Um, she was really important in that with the, with the breakup thing. And then if you go a little bit further down the line, you had pious gold dust and then she was knocking off Val Venus, wasn't she? And that was, I, I think mm. actually went for at least two and a half, three years. There was something to do with the two of them. Uh, maybe, maybe you're right. Actually, maybe you're right. I, you know, yeah, it's a fair point. Um, but again, I, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm purely basing this on what these guys do together rather than as foils. No, I am. I am as, I am as well, but you just said, you just said that the, what they did together wasn't didn't really affect anything fair. else. No, no, and I'm, fair and point. I'm, I'm countering that, and I'm saying that the Goldust act was good. The Goldust from his debut. Remember the debut when no one knew he had uh, a yeah, weird yeah. and threw it off and attacked. Was that against Marty Jannetty? Um, yeah. There was the um, and funny enough, I think his second match was against Batman. But it was uh, indeed. Um, so you had the early stuff with that Goldust, and then you had the, what this was the storyline was going on with Razor. But you needed to keep keep taking it further. If Goldust was going to be this strange character, you needed more. And then when she appeared, you know, not being a traditional manager, sitting in the chair, the cigar, you know, there was a very, very different side of things. I think, I think she was vital to to Gold Dust, and I love the Gold Dust character and always have done. But um, I think she was huge for it. Yep. Well, you're right. You are absolutely right. I think. Um, yeah. No, I, th- I can't argue with that. Like I say, I'm, I'm still not. I'm still not revving my engine about having them too close to the top of the list, but you're right. They did a lot more than maybe I'd give them credit for. Okay. Uh, I have, a, I think I've got one more male female partnership, which I want to push for, or at least offer up. Uh, and it's, but it's a very non-traditional one. I think we have to talk about triple H in China. Yes, we do. That's the one it, I was hoping you'd say. It's a very, very different thing because obviously China is more the bodyguard figure but so think you know diesel or think whoever it might is you think of as uh i don't have christian and tyson tomko on my list but whether it's, you know, <laughs> whether uh or uh, indeed ezekiel jackson and uh the brian kendrick but um if you think about that sort of problem solver heater as they might call it in the corner you know it's weird to have a female doing that i always wanted i think there was a time where they were both around the company i always wanted to see tna do that with rockstar spud and alpha female I think that would have been a brilliant. I remember you saying have, that. Yeah, they yeah. could have they could have each worked as the other one's manager in, in a very different way. But the, what they did with China, alongside Triple H, and what was a very strange thing was that when China started getting more physically involved and having her own matches and having her own moments, she was essentially a babyface. But she was yeah. still with Triple H, who was a heel. 
So she was a heel when she was in his corner, but as soon as she wrestled someone, she was a babyface. China was over. Oh, it's really interesting. As time goes on to think about, you know, the her surgeries and a very strange personal life and the pornography and whatever, and you end up going mm, with China. But that act was red hot. And remember, you went through Triple H's character went through being the pompous blue blood. Then the ladies' man. There's another link with Sable, and he had all the uh, the women around him. Then yeah, there yeah. was then there was the whole. I might have these in the wrong order, but then there was the whole Mister Hughes as the bodyguard thing, and that didn't yeah. that didn't work for five minutes because Mister Hughes has always been terrible. Um, and then there's China, and that is the moment where Triple H's career starts. Everything oh. before that is absolute from the packet mid card. Yeah, and as soon on the as money. China, whoosh, she's the catalyst. I think he'd have got there on his own, but she's the catalyst. She is. She is Triple H's Austin 316. That is without what he would have got there anyway, but she's the one that kickstarted it. Do you know what? I'm you say that, I'm not massively convinced that's true. They tried a lot with Triple H for a fair old time. They tried, and nothing, but it didn't work. nothing was moving at all. They put him there with her. They didn't change his character very much initially, but suddenly he had that foil and he had that air of intrigue. And it just allowed him that breathing space, that platform to create a more robust three-dimensional character. But I don't think he would have got that opportunity without China. Like you're, you're dead right when you run down the history. They tried the blue bud. They tried. Um, I liked Mister. I've always been a bit of a mark for Mister Hughes. I don't know why. He's objectively terrible, but I don't know why I liked Mister Hughes. Sue me. So when he came out with literally like that, uh, be a heel. <laughs> When he came out with Triple H at the Royal Rumble, I marked out. I loved it. Um, but he was very quickly replaced by China. And obviously, history looks very kindly on that decision. Um, but I, um, I, I think, yeah, I think this is a real, real key partnership. It, not only in and of its own right, and it was very entertaining. And it lasted in so many incarnations as well. They went through that initial phase. She was by his side for DX, you know, the original DX. She was... Um, part of the, the Babyface DX until, you know, the big turn. Well, let me get this right. Did he, She turned and then he turned and they both turned. Is that right? Yeah, WrestleMania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just think, yeah, I just think it was, oh, mate, it's huge, huge. One of the, one of the very best um, and a non-traditional one because, like you say, she wasn't a manager. She wasn't a valet. She was kind of a bodyguard, but in a lot of ways they were equals, just with different roles. Um, you know, I just I just think they're brilliant together. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah. and create and created two stars. You know, look at you go back to nineteen ninety nine, arguably the hottest year in WWE history. And there was a moment there around about SummerSlam when it was Triple H, Austin and Mankind in the uh, in the triple threat main event SummerSlam for the title. If they'd have put the belt on China in that summer. It would it would have worked. It would have worked. It might not have been forever. They put it on Vince McMahon for Christ's sake that year. It would have worked. Um and it would have told a story and it wouldn't have felt out of place at all. Um they were and they did that for each other. They brought themselves to the dance together. So yeah, it's it's a real big one for me. Uh I've I feel like I'm arguing against myself, but if you then if you compare Triple H and China to Goldust and Marlena, of course, who had a, you know, a big thing in the early years of, in the early months of 1997. Yeah. Um, what did Triple H end up becoming and what did China end up becoming compared with 
what did Goldust and Marlena end up becoming? And it's just night and day, isn't it, in terms Correct. of how far they got? You know, we're talking so far, we've mentioned, you know, acts like Edge that got to the top or was at the top, Macho Man that was at the top or got there, and now we're mentioning Triple H. They've absolutely got to the highest you can get, not just being the champ, but being the focal point of the company at whatever point. And you simply can't say that for, you know, for Goldust and Marlena or Bam Bam and Luna or, you know, some of the other ones we said, even for Heenan and Perfect. You cannot argue that they got to the very top. And I think that has to be a a huge part. Um, I've done a lot of setting up so far. Let's have you fire one at me. Let's have you set up one, whether it's one that you think is a, a talking point in sort of the mid table of this, or whether it's a definite at the top. Let's uh, let's have one from uh, the Benson notepad. Well, okay, okay. I'm you sort of mentioned on it earlier, and I'm not sure this one's going to get massive praise or get kicked by the side. But one I want to mention is Shawn Michaels and Diesel. Okay, I don't even have that down, but yeah, okay, fair point. You don't have that down, oh mate? Sean no, I should. I, sh- I absolutely should do. Similar, you know, you look, it's similar to the Triple H one in that Shawn Michaels, hey, look, Shawn Michaels was doing great before Diesel came along. Shawn Michaels was on an upward trajectory and he was doing just fine. But, oh, my God, did that Diesel character add to him? You know, you've got that snivelly little heel now who has that big bastard behind him to to wipe up all his, you know, clear up all his messes. And that is a sort of, you know, that was Shawn Michaels in the early 90s. His character was essentially a rock star, wasn't he? And you can so imagine a guy like Axel Rose or Tommy Lee or someone like that in that vein, you know, obnoxious, filthy rock star in the early nineties, having that big bodyguard, you know, he's hitting on a woman, hitting on a woman in a bar, the boyfriend comes along and suddenly poof, the bodyguards out of nowhere to clear up the mess. That's what Diesel was to Shawn Michaels. Um, he was his problem solver. Um, and it just it ratcheted up the heel persona so much in what Michaels did. And it allowed him to go even further out there as a heel, which is what ultimately got him um, into that main event slot, in my opinion. And then obviously the byproduct of that is you create a star in Diesel almost overnight. You know, it's incredible to think that there was no real time between, you know, he debuted in May, June, 93 Diesel did. And then when did he become Intercontinental Champion? It was a. It was. Oh, soon. It was within a year. It was ninety four, oh, wasn't dead it? Dead quick. Dead quick. Yeah. It was. It was. It was somewhere between. It was before King of the Ring, nineteen ninety four. So it was somewhere like May ish, about a year after his debut, um, and it felt like it worked perfectly. And then by the end of ninety four, well, by November ninety four, he was world champion, and he was. You know, we've spoken about this before that Diesel's world championship reign gets unfairly. Um, batten down. He was a very good world champion, a very popular world champion when he got that belt. It worked well. Um, so that is another partnership that, to me, created not just two stars, but two all-time stars, two Hall of Famers. And I think, you know, unlike Triple H, who I don't think maybe would have got there on his own. Shawn Michaels unquestionably would have got there on his own. But Diesel, I think, accelerated that process by one, two, three years. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the reason that I've not included that on my list is more my definition of the topic, which is not to say, by the way, that I'm right about it and that we can't massage it slightly. But I think because I was thinking wrestler and non-wrestler, in my head, Diesel is almost like a tag team partner rather than a, a yeah, manager. Yeah, but, but he never right. No, but you're right. No, he's, he came, comes in as a bodyguard. And if you can have Diesel, then... Um, sorry, if you can't have Diesel, then I can't have... China, do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a similar yeah. sort of process. When, so, 
when, they both have to be out. When, when Diesel went on his Intercontinental run, I know they tag teamed after that when they won the titles, but for a while, Shawn Michaels was his manager. Well, yeah, and he was his Bobby Heenan type mouthpiece. So he kind of flipped over. Similar to what you're talking about with Spud and Alpha Female, that was the blueprint for what you're talking about. Just, you know, same sex instead of male and female. Um, and I think it was great. I just think it was absolutely fantastic. So I'd, I'd have it in consideration for sure. Okay. Uh, let's mark that one down as well. Uh, a couple of others from that sort of, there was an era of managers, wasn't there? There was an era sort of from the late eighties. I mean, I forget that there was a, well, there was an era of managers before that, but there's certainly an era around the late eighties, early nineties where everyone had a manager, every heel had a manager anyway. Um, Let's have a couple from in there just to chat about, if not to put into the uh, the actual uh, thing themselves. Is there anyone that you can um, have that stands out for, for Jimmy Hart? Um, Hart Foundation, right. Mountie, Nasty Boys, probably Hogan. The, probably the Nasty Boys, if anything, or the Mountie. I equate Jimmy Hart to a manager of comedy mid-card heels. You know, I know he wasn't always, but, for, you know, I liked him. I think he was a very good act, but he was always, to me, mid-card-ish. And I think he just added a very bit of cartoony. Very cartoony. Um, and I would, no, there's, there's none I would, I would put forward for this list. It's the complete, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times on this show that I've been watching quite a lot of Nitro over the last, uh, you know, six months or so, that following the, the start of Nitro. And I've just got into, I'm a, f- I'm a few months into the, the NWO era. And you, I completely had forgotten that Jimmy Hart is such a big part of... Oh, massive. You, you know, the Dungeon of Doom around this time. Yeah, so it's yeah, just absolutely. Like, it's so, it doesn't feel right. It's, not, it's, the, 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 it's a darker sort of tone, and you've got Jimmy jumping around with his high voice and his megaphone and his yeah, yeah. mouse. And it's like, just, it, to me, it doesn't work. Uh, what, about, um, what about Paul Ellering and LOD? Um, the, the Road Warriors. Well, all right. Prefacing it by saying I'm, I'm not familiar with their pre-WWF work. Not particularly. I know of it, but I've never really seen much of it. But no, he didn't add anything. Well, in the WWF, he had nothing to the act. Funnily enough, I, I think, just showed, I think made it worse. I, think made I showed, worse. I do. I showed my son um, the SummerSlam 92 entrance today. Um, funnily enough, I've nothing with Rocco. Um, and yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't think there's any, any argument to put him anywhere near this list with the LOD at all. I Complica- think complicated and need a very complicated, a very, very simple presentation. Yeah, I think I think I, I haven't seen enough of him in, in other promotions where they were clearly an act that worked together. Um, so apologies if, you know, in the AWA or wherever, that was a, a wonderful act. But I think if you go again, WrestleMania 8 is a terrible WrestleMania anyway, in a lot of uh, right ways. And the fact that LOD aren't really on that show as a as a match, they just have a, a speaking session and it's, it's Paul Ellering's re-debut, as it were. Yeah, it's a it's a terrible segment all around. It goes on for too long. Even Mean Gene is crap in that segment. He just goes, "Here they come." It's like, who, we're here. Who comes, Mean Gene? And it's uh, it does, it, the whole it? thing doesn't work at all. And back comes Ellering, and he goes, "I have returned. I am the bad apple." And everyone's going, "Look who's oh. driving the train." Yeah, I I anyway, as an eight year old, was going, "Who are you?" They didn't yeah, really explain was, who they I, didn't explain who he was. They just assumed that you knew, and it was. Uh, I, I I must say though, I did did enjoy that promo. Like as as I enjoyed pretty much every promo that Hawk made. Yeah. Um, the line that always stands out to me was when he goes, "Please do something, blah blah blah, like a runaway train." 
scary, huh? Scarier <laughs> now. Look who's driving the train. <laughs> That's quite, quite, a good, quite a good impression. Hawk, Hawk was a great promo. Love Hawk. Hawk, you know, that's another conversation another time. But Hawk could have been the uh, such a massive single star. He had yeah, really, ev- really, everything. He should have been. He should have been apart from the ability to sell. But that's another point. I'm sure if he learned, that, he would have been. Uh, <laughs> well, mind you, it's been Warrior didn't sell, so Warrior made. It I was going to say, yeah. Um, right. Uh, who else have we got that I want to uh, run through? Oh, okay. This is quite a big one because it was a iconic duo. Uh, you know, world champion, etc. Yep. Yokozuna and Mr. Fuji. Ooh, what a good one. Um, I didn't have that on my list, if I'm honest. But, um, yeah, I, I, there's not, I've not got a lot to say about them because Fuji just kind of was window dressing for Yokozuna in a way. I, I would almost say Jim Cornette was more important to Yokozuna well, I was than Mr. To Fuji. It, it, it develops into that. And another one, it's another one of those strange sort of... Uh, Groups where you had there was a couple around about the same time. Funny enough, I don't know what they uh, the lack of confidence they had in Samoans. But when Arthur, oh, was yeah, the, manager, yeah. the manager of the uh, the head shrinkers, we had to add in Luis Albano and a similar thing to having Fuji with uh, Yokozuna that we added in Cornet. I wouldn't have any of them on on the list personally speaking. By like, the I, way, think, I, I think it's egregious not to mention a world champion and an iconic the, of their era. On the not trusting the Samoans with one uh, with one manager list, you also had Bob Backlund and the Iron Sheik managing the Sultan. Oh yeah, that was Rikishi. So yeah, there is yeah. a theme there, definitely. Um, no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have them on this. I, I, I thought Fuji and Yoko were great together, but Yoko would have been great without Fuji. I think Jim Cornette added more to the presence. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think I think you're probably right. Fuji is definitely one of those that there's there's several of that era where you think. I don't think objectively they were all that good. I think they're just iconic because you remember them. Like I mentioned Slick earlier on. I don't think Jimmy Hart, Mr. Fuji, I'm not convinced any of them were particularly you know, we, great acts. We disliked Mr. Fuji as children of the late 80s and early 90s because he was a funny-looking foreign man with a bowler hat who looked just like the villains in the films that we watched. Oh, odd, odd job, um, wasn't he? He was meant to be odd job. Yeah, he was odd job or you know, Big Trouble in Little China or whatever. He was a massive racial stereotype. Um and, and we were conditioned to hate him because he was Japanese and not because of anything he actually did. Yeah. Um, so uh, and just, to, as... just, to, just to hold off the, um, uh, those that will pick up on things. Uh, he wasn't Japanese, was he? I believe he was Hawaiian. Oh. I think. Um, uh, I believe but, uh, so. Yeah. It, but Paul doesn't mean he was Japanese. Paul means he was portrayed. The character Japanese was person. Japanese. Yeah. Well, Yokozuna was the same. Yoko was well, yeah, from, indeed, yeah. uh, Samoa, wasn't Samoa. he? So, um, oh, well, so I think he was. I think he was from California, but yeah, point taken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I've just kind of, I've kind of lost my thread there. But yeah, anyway, point is, yes, you're right. There are a lot of iconic managers. I'd put Slick in that bracket too, um, who were good parts of acts, but certainly not iconic. Another quick one, a fun one, but probably not for the top of the list. Jeff Jarrett and the roadie. Ah, good fun. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. Good fun. Um, Work well again. We're added to Jarrett's character immensely, and he needed that foil. He really did because he kind of felt. It's it's hard to say he seemed silly when he was just doing it himself, but he seemed more silly when he had no one to bounce off. When he had the roadie to bounce off, it felt felt like a more fulsome act. But no, 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 not trouble in this list. No, I'm just looking through my list to the side of me here, and just I'm basically clearing the decks to get down to the last three or four that I want to present as a uh, sure uh, as a very credible threat for the top. Um, I would argue going back that uh, again, 
it's too early for me to be fair on it. I think sometimes we should pre- preface this podcast by saying the greatest in our era or the greatest that we have seen, because we're certainly not saying necessarily that uh, things that we didn't see uh, were not great in themselves because, um, no. because, you know, Arnold Skoland and Bob Backlund, you know, is, is that, yeah. is that a candidate for it? The grand wizard and superstar Billy Graham, like Albano, the Bulldogs, uh, you know, we don't really necessarily have the, uh, the, the chops to be able to, uh, to discuss those ones. So I, I would say that the last one that I'm thinking is very, very good, but probably not right at the very top. This is probably around the playoffs rather than in the promotion places. Um, what about Ted DiBiase and Virgil? Um, I suppose you've got to consider it, haven't you? Um, I mean, it's as over as it gets. Everything yeah, it was, it was, it was over. And it, and, it, and it worked because it was the two of them. I suppose this is like Jeff Jarrett and the roadie, isn't it? But the difference is, I, I think Teddy Biossi came in with Virgil, didn't he, if I remember rightly? Um, I, I mean, if not, I mean, no, I don't think so. But I mean... It was very close was, after, the, wasn't it? But the million-dollar man probably. Yeah, was, yeah, that's yeah, what I mean. Virgil, yeah. um, similar um, similar to the jarrett Rody conversation in that the million-dollar man character just wouldn't have got to the, work the way it did without that foil. Um, but the difference is, A they had much more success over a longer period of time. Uh, and B, they got to have that inevitable breakup, which Rody and Jarrett never did. So, yeah, sim- similar similar thought process, but obviously much more successful. But no, looking at the list we've already got and the ones we've yet to talk about, it's it's not under consideration. Assuming that you know roughly what I'm going to, you know, what, what I've got left on my list and, and leaving them to one side. I'm going to ask you next if you've got any others you want to sort of mop up before we get to some serious ones. But to everyone listening uh, and watching, just in case you feel that we've made some horrendous uh, uh, mistake that we've left something off, if you are so upset that we have left off Shaniqua and the Basham brothers, um, then you can send in your queries at inbox at behaviourselves.com. Um, <laughs> But for anything else that you think we may have missed off, you need to make sure that you're around for the uh, the questions that we ask on social media uh, in terms of getting involved uh, in this particular kind of thing. Um, Paul, I think you roughly will know what, what the ones that I've... we've missed off so far. So anything else that you want to kind of mop up? Well, I've got th- I've got I've got four more on my list, three of which will be on your list. So I'm not going to mention the only one that might not be Vader, Big Van Vader, and Harley Race. No, I haven't, got, I, I haven't got that on the list. Um, I, if only because I'm not sure what Harley... I, I, you know, Harley could talk. Harley certainly gave credibility as a tough guy. Um, but I, I, I just I just think Vader would have been all right on his own. I just don't think Vader necessarily needed... I Harley was a great talker for himself. I'm not sure Harley was a great talker as a manager. He was good, what? but not great. What I liked about Harley as his manager, and from what you heard, um, I think it's the Bruce Pritchard show, but I could be wrong. Jim Ross, maybe. Um, he acted. He, what I liked about the character and the combination was that Harley Race acted like his genuine manager. Right, acted okay, like yeah. acted like a guy. Like you imagine the character of Vader. You know, the character of Vader wouldn't be able to be trusted on his own. He wouldn't be able to. You know, he wouldn't be able to be strategic. And you know, he was a, a huge weapon that would just blow up wherever it chose. Whereas what Harley race did is he guided that weapon and he knew he had the most powerful force in the company, but it needed directing at the right people at the right time. And Harley race did that. And apparently 
fulfilled the same role off screen as well and really kept Vader on the straight and narrow throughout the whole thing. But that's what I loved about it. I loved about the fact that you've got this indestructible, unbeatable force that if you left it without guidance, it would just blow up and wouldn't get anywhere. You know, if suppose if you took it to his logical conclusion, Vader would just be sort of happy, just beat people up. And it wouldn't matter whether that's Hulk Hogan with a world title on the line or Louis Piccoli in the opening match. In fact, you know, he'd probably prefer to take on three jobbers at once than one <laughs> main eventer. Um, but Harley Race harnessed it, found it, discovered it, manipulated it and made it a megastar. Um, and I'm talking in kayfabe terms here now yeah, yeah. Um, and I and I love that and I love the fact that because he was such a legendary tough guy himself you really bought that if Harley Race endorsed this tough guy then fuck me he must be pretty hard um, because Harley Race wouldn't just you know put all his eggs in anybody's basket um, I think it's the I think it's the sort of iconography of the pair that work in the sense that uh, it's, I don't think it's anything that Harley necessarily did as a manager or that Vader did with his manager but more right. just the fact, yeah, it's just it's the endorsement. I think actually what's, what's worth noting is that it's something that AEW are trying to do themselves, isn't it? By not Indeed. You know, Indeed. They've not necessarily got, you know, Tully, Blanchard, and uh, funny enough, it's Arn and Tully, but Arn, Arn Anderson and Tully, Blanchard, managing people and, and you know, and, and, uh, and Jake Roberts. Jake Roberts. Jake they're Roberts. not necessarily the manager in the old school way. They are cutting promos and they're being at ringside or whatever, but they're not necessarily that mouthpiece for whatever it's still about the wrestler but it's almost as if to say okay if uh if jake roberts thinks something of this guy he must be something or if yeah if if cody is listening to arn anderson then he's getting some good advice it's just that little bit of credibility because quite frankly I, do you know what i think the the, the uh, trying to i'm always trying to make a, a sporting angle out of it like where where can you compare that to real sport and actually, probably the best thing is actually tennis. Okay. Now, you might think, you know, like, so Andy Murray's a great tennis player. Who's his coach? Boris Becker. I think it was mm. at one point, anyway. Yeah. And it's like the Pat idea Cash that, as well. Yeah. Pat, or, or, you know, Becker has done it. John McEnroe or Ivan Lendl or, you know, whoever yeah. might be the, the coach from that era back, you know. He, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely Murray's, right. Murray's coach at one point, the Triple H and uh, China of, of, of tennis was Andy Murray and Amelie Moresmo. But, there are there are former tennis players that coach current tennis players. Same with the golf. There are former golfers that you know that coach um, current golfers, and it's, that's more of the development you know that you would have in the the, the way that AEW do, are doing it. And I, I absolutely applaud that because yep. if you try and build your show around Jake Roberts or Arn Anderson, then you've got a bit of a problem, haven't you? You should be trying to build it around you know MJF or something. So it's I think it's, I like the way they've doing it. I like the way they've taken it on to I do, I do. old school level. I think it's very, very smart. I think it adds credibility to, I assume they're doing what the WCW and before that Jim Cockett promotions did, which is skew their um, demographic that little bit older and realize it's older fans that have been around for a long time and get it and understand the business. And those people will recognize Jake and, and that's where they go. And I absolutely think that's what they did with Harley in that era. Cause I just don't remember. I don't remember great Harley race promos as a manager. And nope. then I've seen loads and loads of it as, as the champion and Harley had such presence and the way he spoke so gruff. And it was like, you believed Harley race. And I think you're, I think you're right. It's the credibility that Harley offered rather than the, uh, the, the charisma or the presence or anything like that. A, a very fair mention, but it's not one that I would consider to be top level. No, nor would I. Um, top 10, maybe. Top yeah, five, maybe. No. Pushing no. top 10. 
yeah. certainly on the. Uh, I think most of the ones we've mentioned have been on the positive side of the dial. You know, we've not. Yeah, we've not, definitely. We've not really done, for example, Dusty Roads and Sapphire, which you would probably argue is <sighs> didn't, re- didn't really work, and uh, a few others along the way that have been a, a bit of a clunker. Um, we didn't really go too much about DiBiase and Virgil, but we're we kind of we're knocking that on the head, are we? We didn't really put that one into the uh, into no. the into the mixture. Yeah, really good, but not all time. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm, I have three remaining. I to know talk the about. three. <laughs> okay. uh, are, we, are we clear then to talk about these three and throw them right into the tinderbox? Is that okay? I think so. Yeah. Okay. You start. Pick one. Okay. Um, because we normally leave him till last, let's pick him up here. The Undertaker and Paul Bearer. It's like the Royal Rumble, isn't it? If you have the Undertaker in the Royal Rumble, he almost always comes out 27, 28, 29 or 30. You have to leave him till that late stage. Um, Paul Bearer and Undertaker. I mean... What's there to say? <laughs> we we uh, to give them some lip service. Because it would be rude not to. But anyone that thinks these are not getting on the list of five is, uh, is bonkers. Yeah. Talk about the presentation. Let's talk about the things that went around Bearer and Undertaker. We're just celebrating 30 years of The Undertaker. For how many of those 30 years has Paul Bearer been his manager? Not that many. Seven or eight? I would say that I'd be pushing it. Because it's... So... That you start off late 1990 with Brother Love. It's 91 tonight. Sorry, go on. Quite, sorry. I'm... Quite early 1991, you get Bearer. Yeah. And then 1996 SummerSlam is when they break, isn't it? So you've Five got and a half years. Five and a half run. years. Then you've got whenever he came back during the corporate ministry thing, and then when the return of the dead man, it's probably not more than seven years or so combined, is it? I think you're right, actually. I think I'd, for- I'd forgotten about the corporate ministry sort of era because then he had the 2004 run for just a few months, didn't he? So, so they really had three distinct runs. They had the initial five and a half. They had the Healy corporate ministry type style, and then they had that very very short run in 2004. So you're probably right. It's between seven and eight years out of thirty. It's less than a, certainly less, it's it's a quarter. It's a quarter, isn't it? Yeah, certainly between between a quarter and a third. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but how iconic are they together? Like, just massive. And like he he's another example of did he do much? You know, for the first three oh, yeah. years. Oh, well, man. not a lot. Like you know, in terms of getting involved in storylines and whatnot. Not a huge amount, but that's kind of my point. He didn't that's not need the whole to. thing, though, is it? That's not no, it's not. Thing. not exactly. Not all, of, not all of these managers that we've mentioned have got involved in storylines. Nope. It's really about what they offer to the presentation. And ver- Everything. Under- the Undertaker, without it being spoken from the very start, is a zombie, right? The Undertaker has died. He has come back to life as a zombie because Brother Love and Paul Baron million dollar man or whoever have brought him back to life that is kind of like the unspoken story yeah. here he's able to pop off back to the dark side whenever he wants to he sits up because of this urn like he you are it is meant to be a supernatural zombie character and supernatural yeah. zombies don't speak don't do 20 minute promos in a texan accent so he can do his you know few one-liners and stuff here and there but he needed you know someone to speak for him and actually yeah we love Bruce and we worked with Bruce and we like his podcast and he's back in the, in the saddle and all that kind of thing. And brother love is its own fun thing, but brother love, like you said about Jimmy Hart, brother love is a mid card comedy gimmick. Yep. It is not a main event heel gimmick. 
And if it would have stayed as Brother Love, and again, not a knock on Bruce, Bruce is doing the character he was asked to do. But if Brother Love stays with Undertaker for more than six months, it's Mordecai. No, absolutely. You know, it, absolutely. It, it, it ain't working. And everything we said about, you know, Triple H might have got there without China. Shawn Michaels might have got there without Diesel. Austin would have got there without saying Austin 316. This was all accelerant. Without Paul Bearer, I don't think Undertaker makes it past a year, let alone 30. Oh, mate, I am fully with you. Like he, he, like you say, he gave, well, let me sort of track back and say, when I say he didn't get involved in the stories, he was, he was so much more important than that because he gave license to that character. He, he could, like say, he basically cut all his promos. He directed it. He was the boss. If, you know, if you go by your logic of him being an undead zombie, undead zombies don't think for themselves. Frankenstein's monster doesn't think for themselves. It's, it's Paul Bearer that, that sort of calls the shots. Look who's driving the tree. <laughs> it's Paul Bearer. Um, and then the obviously later on, very good. Later on, when he became a baby face, uh, as you said earlier with, um, sorry, who did you make this comparison with? Um, oh, I'm Savage. Now. Sorry. Mark, Savage was it Savage? I was, I was thinking Savage, but it was, it, but Paul Bearer allowed him that vulnerability. No, it was Goldust and Marlena. It was Goldust okay, and definitely. Marlena, I'm thinking. And Paul Bearer allowed in that point of weakness, you know, like this, this indestructible monster. Um, you needed a way to get to him. And that was through Paul Bearer, you know, either physically assaulting him or taking that urn or whatever. And without that, the, the face turn wouldn't have worked because again, it had been impervious to pain. So, and then obviously everything that all the transitions that Undertaker went through in his career were a result and, of Paul Bearer. Uh, yeah. I, 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 he's there. They are there. They are, they are huge, they're iconic, they come as a pair, and they're on the five. I think so. Um, I mean, well, no, I don't think so. I, I absolutely know so. There's another interesting little uh, nuance of Paul Bear. Is I, I forget exactly what show it is. I think, I think it's WrestleMania 7 I'm familiar with going back and watching. And uh, Bear is in the corner of Taker. And... The familiar Paul, the familiar Paul Bear that we all know. He's not doing that. He's there going, yes, oh, yes. It's a really deep-voiced Paul Bear. He didn't find that, oh, really? yes. He doesn't find it early on. It's much different. It's, it's really, okay. honestly, I think it's WrestleMania 7. It's the one I'm familiar with him doing it. It might be earlier, but Well, um, I tell you what I used to love. I tell you what I used to love, and I thought it was what you might have said there. The way when he'd be at ringside, he'd often talk into the camera. Yeah, yeah. That was great fun. Great fun. But There's yeah, a few of them that did that, but he did it probably best of all. Or talk to the urn as well. Um, oh, yeah. So good. There's so many parts of that. And I should clarify something I said before, which is when I said The Undertaker wouldn't have lasted 30 years, that is not to say that Mark Calloway might not have. You know, Correct. He might have found something else. The same way that fake Diesel didn't work, Isaac Yankum didn't work, Christmas yep. Creature, Unabomber, blah, 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 blah. But Glenn Jacobs got there in the end with Kane. You know, Absolutely, I, they would have found something for Mark Calloway. He would have still have been as good as he is, or well, not, probably not as good, but he would have been still been a very vital, valuable part of the company for a long time. Um, but, he, but he was, you know, Undert I don't think Undertaker would, because on paper, Undertaker is a stupid gimmick. Yeah, it doesn't work. And in wrestling, you can make something work by being so damn good at it, and that's essentially what happened. But that's a little bit of an everything that. Everything had to go right. All the stars had to be aligned. It had to be the right time in the world. Um, even It's even a bit of a fortuitous thing that they discovered. That they bring in William Moody, you know, the former Percy Pringle as a manager, 
and then find out he used to be a mortician. That's go, right. Oh, yeah. maybe we'll give him for taker then. But they didn't yeah, yeah. even know that. And it's like, it's just, it's just absolutely Crazy, everything isn't it? sitting perfectly uh, in one little Pandora's box and it, and it all seemed to work. So, you know, amazing. Uh, undoubtedly on the list. Um, can I go next? And I'll, you uh, absolutely you, can. I assume that you've got this one on the list as well. Uh, let's talk about Jim Cornette for the first time, really. Uh, we skirted around him on the Yokozuna. Uh, he was obviously manager of Vader, of Owen Hart, of the British Bulldog, um, and others uh, in WWF. Uh, but all time, when you go through everything that ever, ever existed, the pairing of Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express um, throughout various oh, territories, man. but particularly, um, I think, to people's you know, wider knowledge in, in the NWA of the late 80s, um, there were lots of incarnations of the Midnights. There's lots of different people that were the, the tag team. It kind of settled on being Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton. And then you could argue it became even better with Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane. Uh, there's been, and there's been lots of different, you know, incarnations. It's, a, it's odd that you would get that. But almost every tag team ever has been, that's the two. And then if you swap one in, it doesn't really work. Like, I'm not putting them on the same levels as the Midnights, but we talked about the head shrinkers earlier on. Yeah, yeah. Not, not, not the same when you replaced Samu with Sione the Barbarian, was it? Do you know what I mean? Even no, if Barbarian no. was probably a better wrestler. It just doesn't feel right when you change one, one tag team member. Loads of changes for the Midnights, but it probably carried on working because Jim Cornette was the Midnight Express. Correct. See, the, the Midnight Express were two immensely talented wrestlers, and it was, like you say, it was different wrestlers at any one time, but they were an extension of Jim Cornette's personality. If Jim Cornette had willed two human beings into existence to do his bidding, he would have willed into existence the Midnight Express. Everything about them was an absolutely solid team. They were on the, and, and what, what they were, which is probably unlike any other um, combination we've seen, with a few maybe exceptions, you felt like they, they, they had one mind between the three of them. Everything they did was calculated was evil well not evil that's the wrong word they, they cheated they weren't evil were they they were they were just they were cheating bad guys rather than evil bad guys for for the majority of it but the point is they were they were scheming horrible little shits and there were <laughs> mani- and there were manifestations of what jim Cornette was and equally he was a mirror image you know in the ring you've got these two well muscled good looking suave dudes and on the outside You've got a small, awkward-looking, bespectacled shell of a man, um, you know, physically and appearance-wise, who was living out his dreams and his hopes through these two guys in the ring. He wanted to be that guy. You know, that was the character of Jim Cornette. The character of Jim Cornette is someone who wanted to be beautiful Bobby Eaton or sweet Stan Lane, but he couldn't be, so he was the next best thing. And he kept that great, you know, he was he kept that gravy train rolling the whole time through whatever tactic he needed to do. Um, I just think they were the best, you know, in terms of in terms of manager, heel manager, and um, heel charge, fighting like enemies over the course of years and years and years, and building heat. They were the best at that ever. That's me. I, I mean, if if you go back to the yeah, again the origins of, of Cornet, it's um. It's a, he's a, he's a mama's boy, isn't he? The whole whole point is that he's got all his money from Mrs. Cornette, Mama Cornette, and he's spending it and all this kind of stuff. And there's very much that thing you talked about with Paul Bearer being the uh, the arm of the Undertaker, which is the most vulnerable. 
Jim Cornette flips that to a heel thing, which is that um, you wanted to see him pay. He's vulnerable in the midnights, but in a, in a nasty way, and you want you want people to get to him. If someone gets to Paul Bearer, you feel bad for Undertaker from you know having his mate having been harmed. If someone gets to Cornette, you go finally. Yeah, and it's the same thing with with Heenan and with most you know uh, weaselish uh, heel managers, but some more than others. And I think Cornette is the absolute epitome of that and he is you know talk about someone that could you know start a fight in an empty room or, or whatever he just seems constantly um able to be the kind of person that can just talk by saying that he could read the phone book and annoy you couldn't he and yeah like, yeah absolutely there's something about jim Cornette, and it's um again this might be before some people's time if it is please go and look them up because there's some uh fabulous stuff and it's not just the, the stuff between the midnights and the rock and roll express which is the most famous feud uh, but so many other things that, that went on. And if, if you are about mine and Paul's age in your mid to late 30s, um, and you remember what we remember, the nearest thing to the Midnight Express in WWE, and I'm not counting the new Midnight Express, Don't we're not starting down wow, that um, Bart Gunn, um, Bob Holly route, but the nearest thing to the Midnight Express in WWE, or WWF essentially, was the Heavenly Bodies. The Heavenly Bodies is, is the same act, really. Um, you know, even down to the nicknames being sort of, uh, you know, Dr. Tom Pritchard and, or Doctor of Desire, wasn't it? The Doctor of Desire. That's right. Tom Gigolo the, Jimmy Del Rey. And the Gigolo Jimmy Del Rey. So that follows, you know, Sweet Stan Lane, Loverboy Dennis Condry. It's the same sort of nicknaming style. Even down to the thing of Cornette would introduce the team and then the team would introduce Cornette. Um, you know, the same, it's really the same sort of act. And it still worked. It was a good act, the, the Heavenly Body. Yeah, the, absolutely. Or, or, albeit not a, a main event one. Um, I think this is going to be hard to shift. Um, you know, in terms of, again, it's the, what we talked about from the very start of this podcast, it's the act. It's not the individual with a good manager. It's not a good manager with someone that he wrestled, uh, wrestled with. It's the, it's the entire act. And you, you cannot imagine Jim Cornette of ever being the big star without the Midnight Express. And you cannot imagine the Midnight Express of being there without, you know, Cornette doing their, doing their speaking. So Correct. Uh, I would be astonished if this doesn't get in the five once we uh, knuckle down to it. Although we might have said that six or seven times already. <laughs> well, we've got, as far as I can see, one, two, three, four, five, six. We've got eight on our list. And the last one. Um, we're, we're, we're about to make on, it nine, aren't we? Well, no, no. This includes what I'm talking about because I think this is definitely on the short list. It's going to be on mine. It's going to be on yours. It's not a manager. It's not a valet. No, it's, it's not, not a second. It's, a, it's, it's an a rap, advocate. It's a rapper. It's a rapper, Oscar. <laughs> Oscar in Men on a Mission. What? It's an advocate. Oh, it's the good. advocate. That sort of egg, egg yolk and orange drink, isn't it? That you have in a snow. Oh, very good. That... Very good. Yeah. Should we just should we just put pun out from here and say the last one we're going to talk about, Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar. Wonderful or what? I mean, just Lesnar is the absolute ultimate person that needs the manager in the sense of wrestling needs a mouthpiece and if you're going to be a Lesnar if you're going to, if, Les, if Lesnar worked every week he wouldn't necessarily need a manager he'd also diminish his star power but that's not the point you know sometimes you can be a good enough in-ring performer that ev- everything speaks I'm, I'm struggling to think of anyone off some Ken Shamrock right if you take Ken Shamrock from that sort of world the UFC world the, 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 the WWF that Ken Shamrock came into, Shamrock was better off without a manager. Yep. He just kicked us. He was just brooding and intense. Goldberg was better off without a manager. You don't need managers, these people. They get in, kick us, leave. That's fine. I, I came very near to where 
arrive raise hell they, they believe but you know they, that's what they do and Austin didn't really need a manager there's certain tough guy and I made mainly baby faces but they don't need the manager Lesnar wouldn't if he was doing that all the time but because you only see him wrestle once in a blue moon and you need to talk up the events he can't do that he's actually a better talker than people give him credit for yeah yeah but and I particularly love it when they do those sort of cut together backstage things of Lesnar looking in looking at obviously an interviewer and saying really he said that about me. I'm going to come in. I've not, not, not done that justice, but those little cut together things are, are great. But you need someone to stand in the ring and do it. And could you imagine Lesnar on his own in the ring the night after he'd beaten Undertaker? Oh. Say, saying, I am the 21 in 21 and 1. Could you imagine him saying, I am the no ring defending? No, it's all Paul Heyman. It's all this concocted, amazing, crucible that Paul Heyman has put together to produce this Brock Lesnar guy. And you just get the feeling that he's done it from day one. Brock Lesnar has hardly ever done anything in the wrestling business without Paul Heyman, either in his corner, opposite him in the corner, or writing it. Yep. it is, he is in, and even writing his book and managing him when he was in another company. Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar just go together. You know, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's more common wise more than it is bloody well, Paul Bear and Undertaker. It's just, it's an inter- they belong it's an inter- If you were to fast forward 20 years and we were to do a podcast on Paul Heyman, what is Paul Heyman's legacy in wrestling? Is it ECW owner Paul Heyman or is it Brock Lesnar's advocate? It's a great question. I mean, because because so it, it should be ECW by all sense. It should be. But ECW failed. But well, it failed, and he's doing an awesome, such an awesome job with Brock Lesnar, and has done for such a long time that he's, in my opinion, he's overshadowed everything he needs to do. But when I think of Paul Heyman, I think of the act with Brock Lesnar first and foremost. Yeah, I do. Um, and that's that is really saying something, considering how interwoven he is with such a beloved wrestling brand. Um, but to me, you know, oh, it's 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 just. They just go. They work so well together. And he's a hype man, isn't he? Like, and what makes what makes Lesnar the biggest box office star in wrestling? And again, I mean that both in kayfabe and non-kayfabe terms. Is because of what Paul Heyman says he is. And if you just have Brock Lesnar telling us us how great he is, then he's just another heel blowing his own mm. trumpet. But Paul Heyman is doing it for him, and that makes such a massive, massive difference. The character of Brock Lesnar <clears throat> wouldn't do that. He wants to go in. He's the best in his best in the world at kicking people's head in. He wants to do that. He doesn't want to deal with the business. He doesn't want to deal with the you know the negotiations. He doesn't want to deal with hyping it up. He literally stands there and leaves it to Paul Heyman. And then when the mm. bell goes, bosh, he does his job. And his job is to get in there and get paid and get out as quickly as he possibly can. It's Paul Heyman who has the sizzle. Uh, and and there's not many acts that are so defined in their roles like that. As Jim Ross famous is it, doesn't he? he compares the steak and the sizzle. Uh, and 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 Lesnar and Heyman are those two elements writ large and writ completely separate. Without the other, the they just don't work. Well, you've seen when Paul Heyman went with other acts. Okay, he worked really well with CM Punk, but it's not very difficult to work superbly well with CM Punk. But you put it, they tried to rub him off on Cesaro and Curtis Axel and Ryback, and it failed miserably. They need each other. And with each other, they are just sublime. And apart, they're not anywhere near the same. No, they're not. They're just, they're, they're just not. And I think in terms of, uh, if you did the whole act of Heyman and, and Lesnar, focusing on Lesnar, you know, with Heyman making it what it is, we talked earlier on about the nature of flipping between babyface and heel 
whether or not Savage did it right and Rollins doesn't necessarily get it right. Not, I'm not that I'm knocking Seth Rollins. Um, other people that you've seen in the past are polarizing. A John Cena, a Roman Reigns. You know, some like them, some don't. Brock Lesnar is a very different one in the sense that Brock Lesnar just plows his own furrow, and he is a babyface or a heel depending on who he's wrestling against. Because if you watched Brock Lesnar versus Roman Reigns tomorrow, the crowd would cheer for Brock Lesnar. But mm-hmm. if you watch Roman Reigns, if you watch Brock Lesnar versus Daniel Bryan tomorrow, they would all cheer for Daniel Bryan. In terms of a pack of cards, Brock Lesnar is a seven. Yeah. You know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if if he's a if he's wrestling against a king, he's a low card, and if he's wrestling against a two, he's a high one. It's just he just and that's not a criticism. It is a very much a, uh, a I think it's a, it's a realistic. That's what people are like. It's what sports people are like. Yeah. There are sports people that you like or you don't like, but depending on who they're against, it changes your mind about how you view them. And Brock Lesnar is right down the middle, and it's Paul Heyman that makes that because yeah. when Paul Heyman wants to, he can be an arrogant in your face. You're nobody. Brock Lesnar's going to rip your head off promo or sometimes Paul Heyman looks at the Brock Lesnar opponent and goes you are the greatest thing that's come along in professional wrestling in the last 10 years but Brock Lesnar's still better like he builds up the opponent and then says Brock Lesnar's better it's that cold classic of if you say that your opponent's a pile of garbage you either lose to a pile of garbage or all you did was beat a pile of garbage and I would always say I don't want to get too off track but I would always say that's my biggest negative point against The Rock I've never thought The Rock made anyone. The Rock did his own thing despite everyone else. The Rock is a little bit like the the Road Warriors in the sense that, okay, the Road Warriors didn't sell in the ring. Well, The Rock didn't sell on the mic. The Rock never gave anyone anything. Everyone had to earn what they earned against The Rock. And that's a minor criticism because he's the biggest star in the entertainment world. But and And he got himself there. But he never gave anything to anyone else, did Rock. Heyman absolutely does. Heyman doesn't just make Lesnar. Heyman makes the opponents if he wants yeah. to. And that's and, also critical. And on that, in that vein, just before we wrap up on Heyman and Lesnar, they're going in the five. Um, if Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman came out on Raw next week and decided they were going to be baby faces, Paul Heyman could make them the biggest baby face in the company. Oh, God, yeah. Within, a, min- within a minute. Within Easy. a minute. Yeah. Um, and that's his skill. And that's the skill of the pairing. And like you said... Brock Lesnar, from the day he came into the company, that character hasn't changed, just his targets have. Um, he has been consistent for, you know, all right, he's out for a long time, but 18 years, essentially. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, it's um, 18 years ago. That he I know, came. I know. He's still the next big thing, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that's... So look, he's in. I think yeah. as far as I'm concerned, they, I think... They are in. They are in. I think we've got four definites, mate, and I think we've got three, as far as I'm concerned, fighting over one spot. Okay, Randy and Liz are in. Correct. Bearer and Undertaker are in. Correct. Heyman and Lesnar are in. Correct. Cornet and the Midnights are in. Hang on. Okay. I will give you my fifth choice about how we've spoken about them. In fact, just give me a list of who you think are the ones that we could put in. So the three I've got, um, Triple H in China, Edge and Lita, Shawn Michaels and Diesel. Okay. Uh, before we started talking, my next level down after those four include Triple H in China, Goldust and Marlena, and DiBiase and Virgil. But over the over the topics, I am content um, that you've talked me out of those two. There are better options. Um, I am still going with Triple H in China. 
Um, I still think that's the one that I think ultimately, if you just look at the wrestler out of these combos, and I'm not talking that in terms of how good they are as a worker. I'm not talking about, you know, what titles they won, but just the position they've held in the company. Mm. It leaves you with Undertaker, Macho Man, Lesnar, Triple H. Okay, the Midnight Express is different. That's the exception to the rule, as you said earlier. But you're talking like, but in their era, they were huge. They headlined cards all around the country. So they were main eventers. Don't, you know, they might not fit in the, the, um, the, the zeitgeist, but they, they were main eventers. I just look at the other ones and say, of course, Shawn Michaels made it up, up there and whatever. But I'm, I, I still think the trajectory he was on, Diesel just accelerated it a wee bit. I think there's an argument to say Triple H wouldn't, might not have made it at all. China helped make it. And I also don't think Edge is on that same level as all those others that we've mentioned. I don't think Edge is on the level of Taker, Lesnar, Macho Man and Triple H. He's not far off it. But I don't think they deliberately made that edge leader thing. I think they just saw what was happening and went with it. It's also quite short-lived as well. You know, it, it rings, a, it stays in the memory, but it's relatively short-lived. Um, I, I could be talked out of this, um, but I would go Triple H in China. You know, I would like to hear your, you might be able to talk me into one of the other two. No, I'm not going to try, actually. Um, you know, I'd love to include Lita and Edge just because I like to include one of the, you know, I like to look like I'm all clever and pulled one out of thin air that really works. But in, in actual reality, I think you're right. Um, if you're using it, you know, if you're using the criteria of saying, what did it do for both guys? What stars did it make? Like you say, if you compare the two, who was the biggest star ultimately as a result of the partnership, Triple H or Edge? It was Triple H. Who was the biggest star, the female side of it, at the, at the partnership? Was it China or Lita? It's China. Well, I mean, by, they are, by a country mile. So yeah. I don't think there's any argument there, unfortunately. I might have preferred Lita and Edge, arguably. Um, but I think but I think H, Triple H and China are the one. And then with um, Diesel I think and Sean Shawn and Michaels. Diesel, I think Sean and Diesel is more of a case than Edge. I do, I do if, too. If we were knocking them out down to the last two, I'd have Sean and Diesel versus Triple H and China. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking. And, um, and I just think it goes on longevity. Yeah, really, um, and I think I think Tribulation China did did more for longer than than HBK and Diesel did. So yeah, I think that's the fifth on the list. Indeed, what what was the name of the In Your House pay per view when they wrestled? When who good wrestled? Friend, sorry, good friends, better enemies. There you go. There do you, you think, go. M- do you think more about Sean and Diesel because of their matches as much as their time together? And I also still think of Diesel as being more of a wrestler that was in a bodyguard role. I know yep. China wrestled, but I think a bodyguard became a wrestler, whereas Kevin Nash was very much a wrestler. They were just waiting for the right time to introduce him. He True. To me, they are, to me, more of a tag team. Triple H and China weren't a tag team. You know, Sean and Diesel won the tag titles. You know, you weren't ever going to see Paul Heyman and um, Brock Lesnar winning the tag titles. You weren't ever going to see Paul Bearer and Undertaker winning the tag titles. Cornet, I'm sure, wrestled with the Midnights in special six-man matches, but as a non-wrestler, Diesel was a wrestler. And, you know, people can make fun of Kevin Nash, and did you did on our social media this week. But, you know, it's ultimately, I think he's a wrestler, and he's a world... He won the world title on his own. How can you, I'm not sure how you can be a top-flight manager, valet, etc., and you won the world title before your wrestler did. You know, Diesel was champ before Sean. So, yeah. in some ways, you know, China wasn't going to be champ before Triple H, was she? So... Um, you know, I would go with that as being my 
my argument for. But there's, you know, we have legitimately gone through a lot of names here today. So I think it's wow. uh, it's fascinating. We need to round things off. So um, the, what is our five then? So in, in so, uh, you give us a five. You're, this is your job. Uh, five. And I'll remind you ahead of ahead of this five, you can now go and vote for this. So if you want to vote for any, any of these five, you've got to head to hookedonwrestling.co.uk forward slash vote. Hooked on wrestling for uk forward slash vote. And your choices this week, and who is the best wrestler, non-wrestler combination will be Triple H and China, Macho Man Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth, Paul Bearer and The Undertaker, Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar, and Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. There you five. And a damn good five. Five premium acts. I think ultimately we were always going to have a four, and it was the fifth one that was the choice. But I had loads of fun going through you know, whether it was talking about Yokozuna and Mr. Fuji or talking about Paul, Paul Ellering and LOD or Jimmy Hart or Slick or Gary Hart or whoever we talked about. Just a fun little uh, route through the history of professional wrestling. It does show how many good managers, valets, seconds, agents, Tons. advocates, morticians uh, there have been. Uh, <laughs> try explaining that to a non-wrestling person. Yeah, one of the blokes is on there who's a mortician looking after a zombie guy. Yeah. And they're the biggest act of all time. Uh, anyway, go and vote. Hookedonwrestling.co.uk forward slash vote, as Paul says. Check out the whole of hookedonwrestling.uk. Oh, what a good plug. That's why you do the plugs. Check out hookedonwrestling.co.uk while you're there. Some great fun stuff, uh, both already there and still to come. Um, also, the Hooked on Wrestling Podcast Network uh, it has various other podcasts on there, four or five other than us. Check them out uh, while you've got some time. Uh, and in addition, as I mentioned at the very start, it's quiz night on Sunday. So join us at 8 p.m. Yes, on indeed. YouTube Live and Facebook Live for our weekly quiz. I think it's probably the highlight of our week now. Oh, uh, it yeah. might be the flagship thing of the uh, of the Hooked on Wrestling Enterprise, I think, anyway. Uh, I think so so join, us, join us for all them. And if nothing else, be back here again this time next week for a brand new topic on how to be great. You'll find out the winner of the poll at the start of next week's uh, podcast and we'll set a brand new topic for you then we'll let you know what that is in the coming days anything to add Paul before we wrap up not really I had a lot of fun doing this and I'd like to you know this is a conversation I'd like to keep going on social media uh, in the next few days so guys just get us on Twitter HO underscore wrestling or Rob McNichol or uh, Paul B HOW um, get chatting let's talk about this because it's a load of fun and um, it'd be a shame just to just to kill it there so that's yeah. a good point, actually, because I think having listened to this podcast now, some people might be more clear on what we were after in terms of the uh, the poll. So, yeah, let everyone know what the what the five we've come up with are, if you want, or if you want to keep that safe for the uh, uh, for the podcast, and then yeah, get people talking and voting and, and having a chat. Because that's really what, at the end of the day, folks, this is not a real award. It's just uh, it's a starting point for a discussion and to uh, to relive some uh, some great re- great moments of wrestling's past. So, uh, yeah, we still really like to hear from you, especially if you're. Really, really, really mad that we left off Christy Hemi and the Rock and Rave Infection uh, or various other uh, people that have uh, been part of our sport's great history. Anything to add, Paul, before we go? No, thank you, mate, as always, for your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. Thank you all for listening and watching wherever you've um, been doing so from. Don't forget to subscribe, etc., and share the word. We'll be back here next week with another topic on how to be great. And in the meantime, remember, it's wrestling. Enjoy it. We'll see you very soon.